Last month, we saw the pictures and read the stories of foreign nationals and diplomats being evacuated from Sudan in dramatic fashion in the midst of heavy ongoing fighting. To any observer of international relations, it brought back memories of a stream of such evacuations over the last two decades, in the midst of civil wars, as well as after terrorist attacks, natural disasters, and the COVID-19 epidemic. Such evacuations are the most spectacular examples of consular work, an often overlooked but absolutely vital part of the foreign services of many states. But consular work also implies visiting and aiding compatriots in prisons abroad, both the Brittany Griners and the less publicized cases, helping travelers who have lost their passports, and fielding calls from expats about how best to prepare traditional Christmas meals. The many-faceted and increasingly important work of the Consul is the topic for this episode of The World Stage, a global politics podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. My name is Halvard Leida. I'm a research professor at NUPI with some experience on researching past and present consular work. I'm sitting here today with Ian Kemish, who served for 25 years in the Australian Foreign Service, including as head of the consular service, as ambassador to Germany, and as Australian High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea. Ian last year published an engaging and frankly at times very touching book called The Consul, with the subtitle, An Insider Account from Australia's Diplomatic Frontline. Our conversation is based on this book. Ian, glad to have you here. Why don't you start by giving our listeners a short intro to how important consular work is today and why you care so particularly about it. Thanks so much, Harvard, and it's really great to be with you. Your reference to the recent uh, evacuations from Sudan bring to mind the level of collaboration that took place during that element of the crisis between the governments of Australia and Norway. Um, Norway certainly helped Australia in considerable part by evacuating Australians from uh, Khartoum at early stages of the evacuation. And in return, Australia was able to assist with um, the evacuation of some Norwegian nationals from Port Sudan only about a week later. It was an indication of some tremendously important collaboration around a really important field of work, I think. I've written this book about uh, consular work because in some ways I think of it as almost the ugly duckling of the of the Australian the foreign service and certainly the Australian foreign service in the sense that you know the sorts of things I imagined when I was a junior diplomat or when I was a young graduate student uh, joining the foreign service involved you know, walking the corridors of power, advising prime ministers, um, being with presidents, neg- negotiating treaties. I certainly didn't have in mind this work of supporting my fellow nationals at what is often the worst moments in their in their lives. It took me by surprise um, during my career, and I became uh, at one point in my career the head of that service, and I. Uh, I look back on that career and that job and also the the other job you referred to as High Commissioner in Papua New Guinea are probably twin peaks for me in the sense that in both cases you could draw a straight line between yourself and humanity, between yourself and reality. Um, I say ugly duckling because certainly when I joined uh, the Foreign Service you know, many years ago now in the 1980s, Consular work in the Australian system was regarded almost as the stuff that the janitors did. You know, real ambassadors didn't dirty their hands with that kind of thing. Yeah, in a, in a famous book about the, the subject, 
historically the British historian DCM Platt referred to the consular service as the Cinderella service. It should be noted, though, that both the notion of a Cinderella service and the ugly duckling sort of brings hope for the future. Well, I think that's right. And I, and I think certainly the... Um, I'd probably hesitate to describe the Australian Consular Service as a swan today, but at the same time, it, what we have seen is, you know, great, much greater recognition on the part of uh, political leaders and the leaders of the organisation itself, the Australian Foreign Service, of the importance of the work. Ultimately, where is the constituency for the work of a foreign ministry? In considerable part, it lies with your nationals who are abroad. Um, in the Australian case, we were reminded during the COVID era just how many Australians were out there. Um, you know, our situation is obviously different to, to Norway. We have no land borders um, and to leave the country involves a certain amount of effort <laughs> in the Australian case. And yet uh, we have a population of something like 24 million people in the year immediately prior to the pandemic, Australians conducted 11 million trips overseas. Um, we had something like three quarters of a million Australians return to Australia during the pandemic, and many more stayed out there. Um, we have a truly international population, and while expectations can sometimes get a little bit out of control, I do think that you know, countries like people like Norwegians and Australians who come from, you know, countries of a certain size and resource level should have a level of expectation that in situations where things get out of control, they can't manage it themselves, the government will provide some level of support. Yeah, and you've been in the service in some of the years where lots and lots of things were going down. So could you give our listeners some examples of the situations you had to handle? The peak moments for me were probably September 11, and I'll explain why that was important in the Australian case. And perhaps more obviously, the 2002 Bali bombings. Now, um, in many ways, well, let me start with the Bali bombings. As you might know, um, the memory is probably dimming for many nowadays, but as you might know, Australia as the nation with the resources, with the hospital system uh, nearby, um, with the capacity to mount a significant um, aeromedical evacuation uh, with the Australian Defence Force um, and also to conduct the ghastly process of disaster victim identification. Australia as a nation with the capacity to do those things nearby ended up being the lead nation in response. And that uh, initial aeromedical evacuation certainly was not um, only of Australians to, to Australia. We actually evacuated everybody. We evacuated Indonesians from Indonesia um, to our hospitals in, in Australia. And quite frankly, not to get too grisly about it, it was actually quite difficult to identify ethnicity, never mind nationality, of um, some of these some of these survivors. It was a huge thing for us uh, and lasted a long time. And you know, I led the response to it. I mentioned it before September 11 because to make a point, and that is that had it not been for September 11, only 13 months previously. 
I don't think we would have handled barley as well as we did. Um, now, you might think, well, hang on a second, uh, you know, the September 11 ta- attacks took place in the United States. What's it got to do with Australia? Um, we, uh, I think we lost 10 people in, in, in those attacks, either in, in the air or in the buildings. But that's not really what the crisis was about. Um, the crisis was about managing an enormous wave of anxiety at home uh, about loved ones because, of course, particularly in those days, before mobile phones had really become prevalent among travellers, there, there were families, there were you know, colleagues, people who were terribly concerned about the location of their loved ones and um, no way in the chaos of finding out. So we had a small advantage in Australia in that the attacks took place uh, at about 10.30 at night, East, East Coast Australian time, and much of Australia slept on through the night oblivious to what had taken place. But we knew that when they woke up and we put out the free call number on our breakfast television shows, we would be hit hard. And um, and we were. And I'd for- I had fortunately upgraded our phone capacity and our ability to manage that already to some extent by then. But I took a look at it after the dust settled, if I can use that phrase. Um, uh and um, thought we really need to rebuild this and um, we built our phone capacities. We um, trained um, a cadre of people across the Foreign Service who could serve as volunteers um, when these big moments came and thank goodness we did because as I say our biggest moment, probably still our biggest moment from a consular perspective was you know October the 12th 2002 in Bali. Um, you know, certainly we lost 88 Australians, but, you know, a couple of hundred people were killed, uh, I believe, including Norwegians. And Yeah, but it's striking to me, though, that the, the um, although uh, Norway and Australia both are close U.S. allies, and uh, the um, 9-11 attacks happened in the afternoon in Norway. I mean, many, many Norwegians watched this live on television as it was happening. Uh, people returning home from work and, and seeing the pictures. Um, it still didn't really hit as hard in, in the organization of the of the uh, Scandinavian consular services so that the, the major point of, of recognition really and, and, and for the Scandinavian consular services was the, the, um, the Christmas tsunami in 2004 where uh, hundreds of Scandinavians perished. It was a massively... Uh, and, and massive disaster from a Scandinavian perspective and really sort of brought home to these states, I think, the, the fact that uh, we have a welfare state and uh, our citizens expect that welfare state to uh, follow them abroad. I mean, in the Norwegian Foreign Service, they joke about the inflatable welfare state. Um, and, but this is a fact of life. I mean, a, a certain percentage of the population at any one time will be outside of the country. And they expect, as you said, rightfully so to some extent, uh, a level of service. So uh, these are sort of grisly situations, and there are a number of others that we could discuss that are that are tragic. I mean, we have both Australia and Norway has had uh, citizens on death row being executed in in foreign countries, uh, but there are also some examples in your book of of uh, sort of 
joy and pride. And I was touched by several of these stories. So when they have positive outcomes, you sort of you feel for these people. But sort of to, to, to brighten the mood a little, can yes. you tell us some of the, some of the, of the, of the good stories, the happy endings? Um, look, I'll, I'll tell you a story which, to begin with, which says where we've come from as a, as a service. Early on in my time as Chief of, of Consular in, in Australia, I guess it was some point in the year 2000, I walked into the office and the night manager um, said to me, oh, funny thing happened overnight, boss. And my, my days often started like that because there's always something happening. And I said, oh, what this time? What had happened was that a young Australian man, 18-year-old um, man, and believe me, for most consular services, 18-year-old men are <laughs> part of the problem, <laughs> uh, uh, had been climbing... Uh, uh, climbing on a cliff in the Mediterranean, you know, um, it was actually a, in one of the Balearic Islands, and he uh, hadn't told anybody what he was doing. He was alone, uh, and I don't think he was particularly proficient at what he was doing. Anyway, he found himself stuck uh, on the cliff. He couldn't go up, he couldn't go down, uh, couldn't move. So what does a, an 18-year-old boy do in a situation like that? He rings his mum. He, uh, he happened to have, unusually for the time, a mobile phone in his pocket uh, and he just hit the number and rang his mother. And his, his mother somehow managed to get through to the, to the organisation that we called loftily the 24-hour consular emergency centre, which was in those days one person in a corner on a phone <laughs> through, through the night. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he, uh, you know the wily experienced person on the other end of the line took the number of the young man, rang him, told him to hang in there, and uh, then um, managed to contact the embassy, who contacted emergency services, who managed to, to get him out of the situation. We were terribly excited about that at the, at the time because it, we, we had only just established that 24-hour centre. Prior to that, if you'd wanted assistance from the Australian service, well, you sort of waited until the embassy opened at nine o'clock and you presented yourself or you rang, rang a phone number. That's where we had come from. And now, of course, you know, it's 24-7 supported by, um, you know, ever, ever smarter software and, uh, and social media interaction and all the rest of it. But that was a big thing at the time. I do have another story if you want it, um, which, uh, which, which can lift the hearts, but slightly longer. Let's see how we go. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, I, I was reminded when you were saying that, let's just take a slight detour of the, of the, of the changes that, these, as you mentioned, on the, on the new technologies, because, again, with the tsunami response in 2004, the Norwegian Foreign Service were taking down names on, on yellow post-it notes and sort of to find out. So there they was a gross overcounting of both Norwegian and Swedish uh, fatalities in the first hours because people didn't realize there was no cross-checking. So only after that did they involve the police who actually had the, sort of the, the experience of dealing with domestic tragedies and, and started getting sort of involved with the, the the software that they have and then the sort of the, the management tools needed to handle this. You're quite right. I mean, in, in my time, uh, we eventually introduced a... Um, a consular management software, which of course has been modernised further um, over the period. And at that point, 
it was probably the Canadians at that point in our history who were the thought leaders on this. They were probably ahead of the rest of us a little, um, and we looked to them a little bit for inspiration. You know, it's silly to think about you know who's ahead of whom, because in the end, it's all about collaboration. But I think we can learn from each other in that way. Similarly, in in my time, we launched immediately post Bali. We we launched um, uh, a program that we call Smart Traveler, which is our and I know you have an equivalent. You know, it's it's our um, interactive um, uh, approach based around a, a website for helping inform and advise the Australian travelling public. These are, were, were important steps. And for us, they were, in, they were stimulated by two significant uh, terrorist attacks. But, you know, the Asian tsunami for us too, as you know, was a very significant thing. And again, you know, we weren't the only, only leader in the disaster victim identification process and all the rest of it. We were certainly among the leaders in responding to that again because it was close by for us. And many of the people who had been involved with the Bali bombing response were again, whether they were police officers or soldiers or consular officials, were again involved in the Asian tsunami. I had just left the consular job and working was working for our prime minister at the time and because it took place just after I, I, I finished, I used to say to people that the Asian tsunami was proof that all the rest of it had not been my fault. But you were going to tell another positive story. It's, a, it's interesting to reflect on this one. There's a, there's a um, hopefully it just brings things to life a little bit. There's a fellow called Lyle Crawford, um, who's not exactly your, the image that might come to mind of a diplomat. Um, Lyle in those days had enormous an enormous beard it's what we call in in australia a ned kelly beard after you know a famous jesse james like figure in our in our history uh and uh lyle was based uh at a, as consul at our mission in Kathmandu in nepal and he took a call on, on the satellite phone one day from a group of uh australian mountain climbers in desperate trouble uh they actually were all um, serving police officers from the state of Victoria who were on leave climbing Mount Choyoyu, which is the sixth highest peak in the world. Um, and they needed help. One of them had died at something like 7,800 metres uh, and they had managed to bring the body back down to 5,000. They needed to get out of there and they rang Lyle. Now, there are all sorts of problems in this situation. They were very, very high, but importantly, they were in China. They were not. They were not in Nepal. They were. They were over on the other side in Chinese Tibet. And you know, Lyle, with the support of others, but you know, he, he deserves the credit for a lot of this. Set about trying to resolve the situation. He worked out quickly that the um, helicopters normally used for rescue work commercially just wouldn't work at this height. So he approached the the Nepalese Defence Force, who actually had some Russian-made choppers that could just do this sort of height. And the chief of the Defence Force said, well, look, you know, we'd like to help, but it's in China, you'll have, to get, you'll have to get permission somehow. And even if you get permission, you'll have to come because we kind of need insurance <laughs> um, in, in dealing with this. Also, our pilots don't know the terrain over that side of the, the Himalayas. So Lyle with the support of people in Canberra, um, contacted the deputy at the Chinese um, mission in Nepal, um, 
seeking support in this way. Uh, went down to the uh, to all the mountaineering shops in Kathmandu and bought up count contour maps, and turned and and kept we kept pressing the Chinese and in a sign that the relationship between Australia and China was probably in better shape then than it is now, the, uh, the Chinese actually agreed that uh, there could be this Nepalese-Australian uh, mission. And they, I, I could tell the story long, but let me tell a little bit shorter. Es- essentially, you know, they, they finally found, to, found these people. Lyle describes it as looking for a couple of shakes of pepper on an enormous white tablecloth. Um, the, there was a mix-up with the body. It hadn't been um, put in the right place. And for safety reasons, they had to return to Kathmandu without the body. And Lyle turned to the Chinese deputy and said, look, thank you for your support. We brought the survivors home. Unfortunately, we couldn't bring the, the, the remains. And the Chinese deputy said, but I gave you a 48-hour visa. You can go tomorrow. And they did go the next day. Um, and finally managed, you know, after two very arduous days to complete the mission. The punchline is that Lyle, when he returned to the to the embassy, um, arrived at about 10 in the morning having done this extraordinary thing. And there happened to be two Australian print journalists uh, watching this public servant arrive at 10 in the morning. And one turned to the other and said, gee, it's all right for some, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that brings us to the, the question of... of, of um expectations and the management of expectations and you write primarily about Australia and but time again and I again I saw resonance with other cases I know from my academic work such as the Norwegian one and I think the lessons from your book should be applicable uh, to many states and their citizens I mean I was struck by again the Norwegian Foreign Service took massive criticism for the for the handling of the uh, tsunami and the Swedish even harder but then we sort of Fast forward two years to the evacuations from Lebanon during the civil war, or the, the Israeli invasion of southern Lebanon in, in 2006, and the Norwegian Foreign Service uh, claimed that with a, with a s- small smile that they evacuated all thousand of the 100 Norwegians who were supposedly <laughs> in, in Lebanon. Uh, and there was another guy who said that uh, upon reaching Cyprus, said, well, um, whether he would sort of reconsider traveling to dangerous places. No, no. I got so excellent service from the Norwegian Consular Service that I have every every sort of certainty that they will come get me if need be. So, um, and I'm touching upon what I think is perhaps one of the takeaways from your book, sort of, and I'd like you to particular, if you could talk a little about what are the dilemmas and challenges foremost in your mind in this field. I think you've touched on it. I, I think um, the core point and the question we all need to ask ourselves as members of the public who like travelling is where personal responsibility begins and ends. And I don't think it's quite in the place where some think it do it does. You know, it, it um the one of the signs of taking personal responsibility is taking out travel insurance. Australians are actually doing a bit better at that now than they were, but there's still far too many Australians, particularly young Australians, heading off uh, without that basic support, which means that when something really bad happens, they can only turn to the consular service. And it's not right and it's certainly not fair that um, a government should simply step in and finance um, uh, somebody out of a problem simply because they haven't taken their own precautions. 
And so Australia, for its part, tries to be quite strict about that. But there are times of national crisis where, for political reasons and for reasons of expediency, that has to be set aside a little. The, the crisis that you mentioned, the, the evacuation from, from Lebanon, was a big thing for us too. Um, we, uh, we have a very large Australian-Lebanese community and um, there were many, many thousands um, uh, evacuated in our case. And, you know, I do recall, to match your story, I, I do recall um, people arriving in Cyprus having you know, undertaken the quite serious sea journey from, from, from Lebanon and being reorganised uh, into onward flights by our consulate there and some of them explaining rather carefully that they only flew business class and therefore that was their expectation for what was effectively a free flight. Uh, you write somewhere else about the, the, the flyers, the people who are being evacuated asking whether they would get frequent flyer miles for the return flights. That also sort of <laughs> struck me as a fairly sort of heightened level of expectations. Yeah. Now, uh, to be fair, these people are probably exceptions and at the extreme end, but they exist. Yeah, they do exist. And and um, this question of, of the of the, the limits um, and the, the question of responsibility and, and legitimacy touches upon a project that we did at, at NUPI a couple of years ago, uh, fittingly under the umbrella of the Norwegian Research Council and work on societal security. Because we asked them sort of, how should we think about the part of society at any one point outside of the country? And the Research Council said, excellent question, tell us more. So we, we, we studied this under the umbrella term duty of care and tried to sort of think through theoretically, politically and normatively, sort of how modern states should deal with the fact that for many of them, a quite significant percentage of the population is abroad at any one time. So what's the implications for state legitimacy of this? And to us, really, we couldn't square the, the circle here, but what was the limit of this duty of care, right? Uh, who should be covered by it? Uh, individuals, groups, um, what sort of uh, uh, commitment to Norway should you have? Or, or what sort of commitment to any country? Because some states ha have higher levels of demand than others. I mean, the Swiss are much stricter than the Scandinavians, for instance. Um, and also, how much care should be offered? Um, should, if push comes to shove, will we help you get on the flight back home, but expect you to repay when you return home, as is the case for many? Um, and also, sort of, what responsibilities do individual travelers hold to be eligible for such care? And we didn't really reach definite conclusions on these topics, but I should mention that we did uh, commit in print uh, in an op-ed in, in Norway's largest um, uh, newspaper at the time that uh, states might make travel insurance compulsory, uh, much in the same way as auto insurance covering third parties is compulsory in many states. If people outside of you, beyond yourself, can be liable for expenses, based on your actions. Maybe you should be forced to have a, a, an insurance covering that. Uh, now you touched upon these topics, Ian, and you've, you've more hands-on experience dealing with them than most. And have you been able to draw any conclusions here? I'm much closer now to the, to, to the view that uh, travel insurance should be compulsory. I think certainly for in a country like Australia, the mantra is often, you know, if you can't afford travel insurance, you can't afford to travel. I think that there could be an opportunity before too long, personally, to actually make that true. Um, uh, in the end, it's a relatively small marginal additional cost associated with, with travel, and I don't think it's unreasonable to go there. 
These are political judgments, though, and personally I don't have any expectation that the current Australian government will go there just now. That's partly because of where the Australian government is up to in its cycle. You know, it's a relatively new government. It wants to show commitment to that constituency. We also importantly have, we haven't touched on this, in our very recent past in the Australian case, a rather controversial period um, uh, in connection with those Australians who found themselves stranded overseas uh, during the pandemic. So politically, it's probably not quite the right time to um, be pushing this too hard. My expectation is that the time will come, though, and that it's not too far away. Um, Perhaps it's next term or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. And I don't think it's such a big ask myself. No, I would tend to agree. I think we're, we're many countries these days are facing uh, budgetary squeezes for their foreign services, and I don't know the exact percentage, but the the amount of time spent on consular issues uh, in the Norwegian foreign service struck me as a really really high when I first heard the number. I've then forgotten the number again, but it's it takes a lot of of sort of manpower to actually do it. And and it also costs. And sort of you, you will fly people home. You will, well, you will demand that they repay the ticket, but you might not be able to enforce that. No, that's right. And that's exactly the situation that we, we face as a service in Australia as well. Um, and, you know, I think it's, a, it's something you just said just makes me want, just want to emphasize this point. It's, it's important to remember that Consular work is not only these big crisis moments that we have just been talking about in peacetime, if you want to call it that, in, in the in the periods between between crisis. There's an extraordinary amount of work happening below the surface that doesn't come to the attention of uh, of the media. Uh, in the Australian case, and I don't think Australia is unusual at all. In the Australian case, something like four Australians die. Uh, outside the country overseas every 24 hours and similar number of hospitalized slightly smaller number of arrested and it's not that we're a bunch of criminals it's just about the it's about the odds the statistics involved when you have such a significant number of Australians offshore at any time it's I think the numbers for Norway is actually comparable I think it's on average probably three Norwegians a day most of them will be retired people living in southern Europe, but still, you have to manage some way of, of getting the bodies back home if they are to be that are buried in Norway. Um, I looked at the numbers for this some years ago, and, and it struck me that m- most countries were fairly even, but uh, when it came to um, imprisonment, the Brits seemed to be the leaders in the clubhouse. For some reason, British abroad ended up in prisons more often than uh, Scandinavians or Australians. It's so tempting for an Australian to, to say something, um, say something smart about the Brits in this context, but I bet, I'd probably better not. I um, that that is interesting. You know, I um, I recall as ambassador to Germany, um, uh, you know, it was part of my regular pattern to go down to Munich every November to apologise to the the police chief there um, after Oktoberfest. Because Australians are, you know, very active participants, let's say, <laughs> in, in Oktoberfest, and he uh, he said to me, "Look, you, um, thank you, and thank you for this bottle of red wine you've just given me." But I have to tell you that the Australians are probably not my biggest problem. But the, his biggest problem was, was not actually the Brits. Um, uh, his he um, it's, it was neighbouring countries, you know, the Italians and the French and so on, where the sheer numbers were 
were so significant that was his his biggest issue. Australians, well, look, in our case, at any given time, it's something between 300 and 400 Australian prisoners abroad. And I suspect this applies to all of us. Frankly, most of those people have a case to answer for, answer to, and they should be um, dealt with according to local law, as international law and international convention dictates. Um, We do, and I know, including from our discussion just before, that Norway's had several cases that you might describe as special uh, detention cases. We've certainly had them. Um, and, you know, I think of the so-called ringleaders of the Bali Nine, um, uh, drug smugglers uh, who were executed in, in, in Indonesia, but I also think of um, uh, the Australian academic Kylie Moore Gilbert, who was imprisoned in Iran and actually released after a prisoner swap um, in relatively recent times. Uh, I think of two Australians who are currently in, in jail in very murky circumstances in China. In these cases, what happens is that governments end up making a political judgment, and it is only a political judgment, that there's something different about this and that they need to step beyond the boundaries of the, the Vienna Convention and actually start to press for a different kind of justice to the one they're observing. Um, and that becomes very intense. Yeah. Our Norwegian listeners will remember the case of, of Joshua French and Torstein Moland, who were sort of soldiers of fortune in, in the Congo, uh, accused of and, and convicted of uh, killing their driver. And then uh, I think what eventually brought the one who survived home was, uh, we discussed this before we started the podcast, the sustained media pressure. And you touch upon that in the book, the sort of the... the, the the double-edged sword, in a sense, of of media attention. In that one thing, it's perhaps good that it can sort of put pressure both on the home government and on the on the government abroad, but also has the potential of raising the stakes, making it harder to find the sort of backroom um, deals. So this is sort of, from reading your book and from 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 knowing the Norwegian experiences, seemed to me this is a very much a case by case. Yes, and I think the Australian. I know that the Australian Foreign Service has. Is, has adjusted its view a little about this in, in recent times. I think there's a more sophisticated kind of thinking uh, in the Australian service about making a case-by-case judgment and working with the media um, if, um, if, it's, if it's going to help. And in some cases it does. Um, we had um, Peter Grester, someone who's become quite a good friend of mine, who was an Australian Al Jazeera journalist held in uh, in Egypt during the Arab Spring for about 15 months. And that was an example uh, where international attention, uh, a family that was rather well-equipped to conduct a constructive but very active media campaign, where it actually worked rather well for the media to be involved. But I can think of many other examples where it just didn't and where it robbed us of oxygen and made things very difficult. Um, In a particular case I have in mind is a very celebrated, celebrated is the wrong word, a a controversial case um, involving a young Australian woman several years ago now called Chappelle Corby who was in prison on drug charges in, in Bali. And the Australian media took up her cause um, uh, 
some did, in ways that um, were very unhelpful. Uh, and, you know, the, the worst elements of our media, and we have them, um, frankly, demonstrate a bit of racism in their, in, in their approach to the, the issue. And it certainly didn't help Chappelle. Yeah, when it comes to media attention, in our small way, through the podcast um, we've just conducted, um, the uh, World Stage, the Global Politics Podcast of the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, we've tried to, to emphasize consular work in general rather than the specific cases. Uh, I would urge those of you going to the beach this summer, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're approaching summer, to bring this book, to read the book, and to ponder how you can be responsible travelers and make sure you have your travel insurance in order. The book is The Consul, an insider account from Australia's diplomatic frontline. And the author, Ian Kemish, has been discussing with me Halvard Lara today. Thank you again for coming, Ian. Thank you so much. <laughs>